I think the most recent stuff you've done on the website on Panfilo has been really, you know, that sort of like data analysis of the productivity of the team as it's grown, has it gotten better? Is there a reason behind that growth? And so is that that's something you're thinking about as far as, so you've got your lean startup, like what are you borrowing from the startup stuff? You know, get into the batching mm. and things like that. That's in terms of how you handle the workload. What other things are, you know? Um, the batching is an interesting one because I think um, it it exposed a like a fundamental challenge within architecture compared to say most startups mm. where um, in the tech world where the cycles are all internal and yes, you're going out to the public to try and assess their values and, and what they want to achieve and potentially even have a board who are trying to help push you along but there's no like judge and jury sitting there assessing your performance but architecture has to work that way because we can't just do this on our own mm. without consulting with the client because ultimately they're the ones who have to say yay or nay yeah. and so you kind of you've got this scrutiny that's going all the way through it and so we've tried to reduce the time between um scrutiny um like hurdles uh, and also both from a design point of view and from a budgeting point of view. So um, like the biggest challenge, of course, uh, from a project delivery point of view is keeping the thing on budget. And there's often like a big gap between your early budget assessments and getting the builder on board right at the end. And so we're doing things like bringing the builder deeper into the process and really advocating for that with our clients so not competitively tendering but going to a single builder and getting them to provide pricing advice like straight out of town planning and for the whole second half of the project providing some sort of semi-regular updates on dollars so we don't accidentally end up having to you know carve a hundred thousand dollars out of a project at the 11th hour when everyone's ready to get on site and then the clients start freaking out um so that's been a good thing. Um, I read a great book a little while ago called The Silo Effect by Gillian Tett. Um, she's a journalist or was a journalist, I think, who, um, she's not dead, but she just doesn't work <laughs> that way anymore, I don't think, um, yeah. who like headed up the economics desk at the New York Times or, I don't know, Daily Mail yeah. or I don't know, London, anyway, I can't remember which one. And so she just like shared all these stories about businesses that totally missed massive opportunities or got pooched entirely as a result of silos within their businesses. Sony being like a classic example yep. and then just like they should have been the ones that came up with iTunes. Like they were yep. perfectly poised and they lost out massively due to just screwing it up. Same with the iPod and that yep. sort of stuff. Um, and you know, it's like, I don't know how, it's not super easy to transfer that to a small practice because you're all in the same room. Mm. You can just yell at anyone and mm. I don't have to yell. I just have to whisper and they can hear me. It's all such, so small. But um, we're proactively making sure that when we pair people up, we're constantly moving people around. So mm. our business model is, is that Eric and I um, split the projects basically 50-50 and then each staff member, we get one other person on the team with us mm-hmm. and then that team might grow to three at pinch points of the project but that two-person team then continue all the way through and so we're making sure that every kind of possible matchup exists so that we don't end up creating like a Warwick and um, Amy team that just seem to work a lot together and then Amy doesn't work with Erica at all or mm-hmm. I don't work with others as much mm-hmm. so that's been good okay. um, uh, 
Ed Catmull you mentioned before and Pixar. That's an interesting one. Mm. I mean, they're so fascinating because their whole thing is about how do you maintain a creative culture within um, a really large organisation. And they're also all about the idea of um, creativity being this super delicate, um, very um, non-robust exercise that as soon as like the money men, the suits come in, can just destroy that process really easily. Mm. So he talks a lot about how do you insulate the creative process from the drivers of economic um, mm. impetus. Mm. And so one of the things they do is, is they very strongly divide each film project into the kind of the developments end when you've got all your, you've got like 200 guys and girls sitting in front of computer screens modeling for like six, 12 months or whatever, which costs God knows how much per day. And then you've got the artistic team that come at the front that develop the look and feel for the, the project and storyboard it. And so they have like a storyboarding technique where they just do like little A5 mm. pictures. And they, I think a movie might have 2000 of them but they might redraw each one half a dozen times in that process. But it's like a tiny piece of paper in yeah. a team of 20 people or something or 10 or six or whatever. They develop the entire story. So by the time the development starts, they don't have to like keep on second guessing themselves. Yeah. Um, and so we're sure. trying to do some of that stuff. Like okay. how do we get design happening when it's less expensive? So, you know, that sort of stuff is usually like that sort of stuff where you're trying to balance the orderly managerial culture against the sort of artistic entrepreneurial culture. Um, that's usually something that happens in much larger companies like mm. Pixar. It's like it's a symptom of you've managed to bring in strong managerial talent and that's enabled you to grow to a certain size and the whole thing hasn't just fallen apart. You've been consistent to something. But then it's the, it's the problem that you described, which is that like how do you stop the creative process from just falling apart? Um, I've been thinking lately about that in small architecture firms they're actually lacking a lot of managerial orderliness and that's not just in terms of like you can't expect architects to be that way or learn that that stuff if they don't already have it but the diversity of the people that are on the team as far as like people's personalities and their traits it always seems to be a lot of designers in a room um, and the same um, Nick Grantless and I spoke about in the podcast last week but do you you were mentioning siloing do you have is everyone pretty much doing the same thing in certain ways in your office like everyone comes from a similar background as far as that goes or yeah that's a good question um, so I mean yes it is the short answer with the exception of I guess Erica and I and yeah. our studio manager Leanne who doing the business side of things mm. everyone does the same thing in as much as they do everything mm. so I I think that um, it's, it's something I've not actually thought about what you just mentioned the idea that siloing can happen as a result of the tasks that you're doing which happens a lot in large practice so like Bait Smart, for instance have a delivery team and a design team and they're like totally separate I think they might even be on separate floors yeah. I've even heard that Wardle um, silos his um, business into project types so if you're on the commercial team just doing offices and things mm -hmm. it's very hard if you want to try and switch to the education team mm -hmm. or the residential mm -hmm. team those mm -hmm. groups don't cross pollinate very yeah. much at all yeah. um, and I've also heard that it's kind of it's like hard to even sort of have a conversation across those those borders yeah, yeah. Um, 
from it feels like as soon as you get to a certain point those silos start developing in architecture practice and even mm. Pixar has that I mean, mm. they've got mm. the artistic mm. team the development team yeah. which are two yeah. sort of separate side of things um, for, so from a task based thing currently we're still maintaining the idea that design and delivery are the same thing there's no distinction and we're not going to we don't mm-hmm. even though it might be more efficient mm-hmm. to have like to employ some drafties for instance to do all that documentation yeah. and then have designers do the front end of things yeah that just feels soul crushing to us yeah yeah I, I don't think it's related to like like in the in a tech startup you would have um engineering and you'd have user experience and mm-hmm. you'd have design mm-hmm. but they're all still in product and i think this is more what i'm talking about they're like Startups don't build with just a product team, or they might when they're at like one or two people. Yeah. But then they start to think, well, they start to go. There's there's more than just developing the product to the to the to the story of like how we're going to grow and succeed as a company. Um, and sometimes the biggest mistake that startups make is in tech is that they are completely focused on product. And obviously, I'm coming in with a bit of a bias because I'm I'm always thinking like. You know, firms need to, or if they want to, you know, get that kind of traction and grow and become like sort of much bigger, like 30 people or whatever, there's other areas of business that are, you know, so crucial. Mm. But does that, does that sort of, you know, you're at like how many people? Eight. You know, eight. Um, when, when you go to like 30, <laughs> if you go to 30, which judging by some of the exponential hockey sticks on your website is like completely possible um <laughs> if we want to go to 30 yeah this is another question yeah i mean i think um we kind of we all had a bit of a chat about that on twitter when you put out that article it was yeah. kind of like well, why yeah why, why are you doing it such a good question. <laughs> which is you know it's, it's a bit of a it's like a it's like a tongue-in-cheek kind of question because you at least if you're looking at it like financially the answer could be kind of obvious it depends if you're trying to grow like a business that you want people to invest in and have equity and that eventually you can sell then that all makes sense or or maybe it's just more profitability so that you get more you know money basically like those are two really obvious answers to why you would grow a lot mm. but um i mean growth you know, is a uh, like in the business world yeah it's almost considered a like, it's like a given given right yeah, yeah. um yeah. Know, capitalist democracies if you're not growing yeah. you're dying yeah so even even just standing even staying the same size is seen as a death of a kind. Yeah. Um, which I'm, I think that's quite a new idea. Like culturally, I yeah. don't think that's been something that we've just always kind of had. Um, but it's certainly like now the way things work. Yeah. Um, so I mean, yes to the answer of um, like I think a little bit about the end of end of life as well occasionally, mm-hmm. and I know that like my, and I, I don't think about it think about it in sort of with a fair measure of discomfort the idea of what happens at the end of our careers yeah. I don't really want to be thinking about that too much <laughs> but you know so many architects um, build their practice up and you speak to older architects oh yeah you know I used to have 15 people and I just wound it down because mm. I didn't want to manage anymore I just wanted to mm. get back to the basics Yeah, and so they've gone and spent all their time all their life building this business only to then just kind of let it fade away which means all that value that they put into that business has just kind of disappeared into the winds Um, whereas within the tech world the whole goal like the the mecca of that is the IPO or like selling your business to to another business for a billion dollars Um, that doesn't even exist in architecture and there's always there's almost like a little bit of sort of faint suspicion 
around um, mergers. Mm. And I'd, I've heard, for instance, and this is a bit of a sort of a gossip mm. train that... Um, Careful, man. Yeah. We're on, we're on the air. <laughs> we're on the air. That, you know, <laughs> Coda sold to yeah. um, Cox recently, mm-hmm. and I've heard it hasn't gone well. Yeah. Um, that there's Aqua been a downturn hired. in... So, so again? Aqua hired. It's where you like acquire a company, but also to hi- basically as a recruitment strategy to yeah. hire all their stuff. I've heard a lot of the staff have been let go. Yeah. Because Perth has had a massive downturn yeah. at the end of the mining boom. Yeah. And so it's kind of, yeah. you know, they bought at the wrong time. They, so um, the, like there are those risks. Well, Coda must have done okay. They kind of sold the top. They yes, like sold the top true. of the market. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I love those stories. Like the Lonely Planet guys. Um, yeah. The couple who built Lonely Planet, they like, yeah. sold at the absolute height of Lonely Planet. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Then, um, to like the BBC or something yeah, and three yeah, yeah. years later it was worth almost nothing <laughs> yeah I think the same Jesus. thing happened with MySpace as well oh really yeah I think they sold it for like um, a few billion dollars to Rupert Murdoch <laughs> and then it and they just like and fell Facebook apart destroyed it and then they sold it later to um, oh my god it's like Ashton Kutcher or something for like eight million it, like somebody somebody bought it uh, Justin Timberlake bought it that's it right um, yeah, yeah I yeah I mean that is looked on with um, suspicion but it's also so rare I can't I actually can't think of another example but we haven't actually seen like a proper recession yet so um, an example maybe, of merger or example yeah, of yeah well, I think it, like Cox has bought that was bunch surprising of it was surprising when Donovan Hill and BDN that was another one okay um, they, they merged or they were one by the well, other they were, I mean it became being yeah, Donovan yeah, Hill for yeah. like a year and then yeah. it just dropped the Donovan Hill mm. um, you know that, that idea like when I speak to friends who are in creative industries outside of architecture yeah. the idea of the acquisition is actually like a real one mm. um, and part of the challenge with a small architecture practice mm. is if you're trying to build, build value into the business is like what value actually is there yeah. there's goodwill but without a director that director involved that might just totally disappear yeah. And residential is not like a sustainable um, no. project. Not a lot of returning No returning clients, clients right? Yeah. So we've got a friend of ours who mm. is in um, sort of enterprise software design and things. Mm. And most of their clients are big government organizations that they've been working with for years and years and years. They have ages. like million dollar contracts that yep. last for 10 years and things. The process has become efficient over time. Correct. Yeah. And so that's something you can buy. Yep. And so they're selling like this friend is like in the process of um, mm. selling company mm. um and that doesn't really seem that's not like a legitimate exit strategy for architecture mm. um so there's that i think the other part of it is in that blog article you, mine you mentioned mm. um that idea of being able to do interesting things mm. um peter raisbeck talks a lot of, research should, yeah 100 percent. yeah if he wants to podcast. peter if you listen to this hit me up yeah um he'd be great yeah, so it's all about practice-based research, yeah. which I'd love to do more yeah. of. I love um, that cynical take, like he's got on it, like breaking down everything that people are so-called like researching, and it's usually just like what they're being paid. You yeah, know, it's like yeah, we're right. researching housing yeah. by by designing houses. Yeah, but like yeah, there's um yeah, it's an important important area. So you want to you want to start thinking about research and development. Um, yeah, well, like what about like, you know building products that yep. can sell themselves rather than. Yeah, you know, the totally yeah, non-scalable yeah, 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 architecture yeah, yeah, that yeah. we generally do. Yeah, um, it's like hard to draw the line though when it just becomes like a pivot, you know, where like you pivot your brand into just you know trying to use your brand equity to make revenue in some other way versus like you know there are some firms that 
I guess like competitions kind of become research like or a way of like building out business development in like a new area of work that you don't actually have a portfolio in is that but, but you just want to do fun stuff like like yeah, Char- and Charles Eames like just get that kind of fuck you money that you can just like make short films and you know like <laughs> you know uh, and like just des- and design stuff that nobody needs and like do all that kind of thing I don't, don't want to design stuff nobody <laughs> no, that doesn't but sound like, super but, exciting you know but like um, Charles Eves like decides to go on tour giving like lectures about like you know the the wonders of thread thread and boxes of nails and like he just he just becomes this like eccentric um, eclectic you know guy because he just made so much money on, on uh, Eames chairs yeah that basically it was just like well it's passion projects from this from this, this point, point on, on, yeah, from this point forward. Actually, look, I quite like the, um, I like the hunger that comes from needing to make the, yeah. the mouse in you read who moved my cheese. Um, it's just like a, an allegory for um, for business, and you know, you've got these mice and these little people scurrying around for cheese, um, i.e., the cash um, <laughs> in their in their lives, and. Um, day after day they're running through this maze to get to this massive lump of cheese and then one day all the two mice and the two little people rock up at the cheese and the cheese is gone and so the two little people just hang around waiting for the cheese to come back and the little, two little mice go well alright we'll just start looking for some new cheese straight away and so the whole thing is about one of the two little people who then decides okay this is ridiculous the cheese obviously isn't coming back I need to relearn how to be hungry and go find some new cheese I like the process of chasing the cheese. Yeah. I think that's quite... That's um, it. It's like it inspires creativity because it's not easy. Mm. Um, mm. But I've often wondered if, you know, I suddenly won a lottery and had millions and millions of dollars, whether or not the business would kind of just lose its <laughs> yeah. the wind in its sails or yeah. something. Yes, I think so. I mean, I, I see it personally, like in my business, because all of my client work is... Um, it's recurring in nature, like month to month. Yeah. So I, I can build build like a startup, a, a sort of a stable, growing, monthly recurring revenue. And that's mm-hmm. the kind of headline economic number that I look at. And if that's doing well, I just I just go do archery for two weeks, which is like my, my side hobby. Or I just... Is it really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I just do whatever. I just play yeah. video games. I completely, like completely take the piss as far as like, the two days a week that I should be doing stuff. And then because the business, like you were saying earlier, you know, if it's not going anywhere, it, it, if it's not growing, it's dying. I think businesses sort of want to kill themselves a little bit. Like they start, like client projects finish, clients finish, things finish, staff leave eventually. You know, things just go away. And if you don't tend to it, it will just go. Yeah, it's called entropy. Entropy. Yeah, it yeah. just wants, it just really wants to fall apart. Yeah. And then, when the only starts, reason is momentum is because yep, you're pushing. Yep, yep. And I'm, yeah. you know, ambitious enough that I see that number dropping at all. And it's just like everything changes. And I just have commando boot camp week. And, <laughs> and things happen. And then, we, and then we're up again and then I'm playing computer games and we're chilling. And it's like, <laughs> it's like <laughs> as, as far as like, well, as far as, um, you know, doing, going the extra mile and like trying stuff and being goal oriented. So when I'm just like, you know, doing my normal thing, I'm very task oriented Sunday, not particularly looking forward to work on Monday, but when I get into more of a goal oriented, when I'm chasing the cheese, 
I'm excited for work and mm. things are exciting. I'm excited to block out time, you know, to do extra different weird things. And like, so I think, I think that's what it is. It's like, it's a goal that is, you know, tra- it transcends any immediate tasks or projects that you're focused yeah. on. And I think, think planning is exciting. Yeah. Um, like, which is like another way of saying dreaming yeah. about what's going to happen. Um, yeah. And I also think I'm quite, I'm quite excited about, um, so the thing in the book, uh, um, I'm trying to think of the author now. Um, I can't off the top of my head. Um, I highly recommend it to your listeners. <laughs> uh, is um, is the is the chase is the whole point of it is it has no known finish. Like you're not gonna you don't know when the cheese is gonna suddenly turn up. Mm. Or the idea is is you might find a small bit of cheese and then decide to actually keep on chasing a larger piece of cheese. And um, it's that kind of whole it's the methodology of it. Mm. Um, and also for us, if we are interested, like we're interested in diversifying, that's a, a big kind of mm. our project at the moment, our business related project. And that diversification may not just be into other architectural typologies, it might be into other types of service delivery. Yeah. Yep. Um, and the, the big passion would be scalable service delivery. Um, and those things are kind of are also super exciting because one of the things that I've really come to realize very, very um, profoundly since starting this kind of diversification exercise is we become very good at chasing, winning and delivering residential architectural projects. Mm-hmm. But if you take the word residential or the word architecture or even maybe the word project out of the goal and you replace it with something else, I wouldn't have a clue. Like, how do you procure, what are, what are the daily tasks or monthly cycles or the sprints mm. you're doing or whatever in a tech startup? How do you get, how do you get um, investors on board? Mm-hmm. Like, there are all these words like Series A and Series B and yep. like investment um, rounds yep. and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And presumably to someone in the tech industry, that means they can probably map out like a whole sort of six or 12 months of activities that need to take place to get to that point. And I know those activities when it comes to architecture. And we're very good at knowing what comes after the current task. Yeah. But learning about other procurement methodologies, that's really interesting. Yeah. You know, how other industries get shit done, mm-hmm. that's fascinating. And I think it's probably going to have a lot of really valuable lessons back to what we yeah. do. Yeah, yeah. Which is why when we took on our studio manager, we expressly wanted someone who didn't have an architectural background yeah, yeah. someone who could be like whoa what the hell are you doing i can't believe you're doing Why it this way you? yeah, yeah, like yeah. the percentage fee model yeah, yeah. so back to your sort yeah, of four yeah, pillars yeah it's still how we charge but it's madness i really want to talk about that because <laughs> okay. it, it I, I i want to get into that i want i would love a really quick summary of a few different fee models um, or you know the couple that you've kind of spoken about on your blog. I mean, it's probably obvious to anybody that's listening, but I think it's good to sort of set the foundation of really quickly. What are the options? You've got you've got um, percentage. Yep. You've got lump sum. Yep. Hourly. Yep. And then what was the other one? Task. Incremental. Incremental. Yeah. Um, so so you stick with percentage. What just real quick pros and cons summary of each. And usually it's about the stakeholders. Good for the architect. Bad for the client. Good for the yeah, design. Yeah, yeah. That kind of thing. Uh, so percentage, um, it's tra- super transparent and super easy. So for residential clients, 
rather than saying, you know, there are, here are the 20 different parts of our fee that we're going to charge you over the next two years of our relationship together, you just say, here's one number. And so that's the first thing. Second thing is, is that residential clients um, regularly change their budgets. In fact, almost always up and down, it's like it's crazy. So the idea of trying to lock down a fee at the beginning of a project when your scope is unknown, when your services delivery requirements are unknown, is also madness. So the percentage fee just floats up and down as you need it to. The downside of percentage fees is when you get asked to do stuff that are out of scope. You know, you've had this one conversation at the very beginning of the project, they've signed you up and it's for tens of thousands of dollars over many, many, many months of work. Um, it's this huge project that's happening and then they ask you to do like one hour of something that's out of the scope. It's like really petty to go and ask for an mm. hour mm. on an hourly rate. Mm. Consequently, architects absorb a lot of that work yeah. for free, yeah, which yeah, is yeah. bad. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But we're trying hard within the fee model, the percentage fee model, just to break that cycle and say, sure. oh, this is out of scope, we're going to charge sure. fees for it. Sure. But it's still hard. So that's sure. percentage. Yes. Fixed fee, um, good for clients because they just get a number. Yep. It's not a percentage, it's actually a physical just dollars. A yep. I'm going to have to pay you $45,000 for this. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm going to, I can now budget for that, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, we have done we've done that a few times mm-hmm. um, I think it needs really careful management I don't I'm not convinced that a, rela- a client architect relationship could survive a lot of renegotiation of that mm. fixed fee mm. it could just start going wait a minute all you're doing is asking me for more money mm-hmm. whereas the good thing about the percentage one it just changes automatically yeah. there's sort of no questions yeah. asked um, and so we did have one project where we probably went in a bit belatedly and said look your scope has changed a lot we need to modify the fixed fee. Mm. And they've said, wait, no, 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 wait a minute. It's fixed It's fee. fixed. Well, yeah, yeah. And we ended up negotiating. <laughs> like, a, um, like an all-you-can-eat at Sizzler or something. It's like, hey, man, we had no... Yeah, we had... We had it was all... It was everything. everything. To do everything. All-inclusive, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so, like, we ended up negotiating a pittance on whatever... I can't remember what we were after, but I think we only got, like, 20 or 30% of it. Yeah. It was just not good. Yeah. So that's probably the downside of the fixed fee model. Mm-hmm. Um, probably fine in... But then again, that's generally how it works mm. in other typologies, particularly mm-hmm. when the scope is much more clearly defined, mm-hmm. you know, government work and council work and so on. Yep. So, right, we've got $2 million to spend yep. on this centre. Yep. That's it. Make yep. the centre happen. Yep. Um, you can kind of quantify it better. Yep. Hourly rates, great for the architect. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't, I mean, I've heard plenty of examples where clients accept that, but I just cannot see how that would end up more cost-effective for the client. It never would be. Mm. I mean, we we chew through our hours and that's mm. the other sort of challenge that we're always trying to face. Like, mm. how do we do this more efficiently so that our hourly rate within the percentage model goes up? Like, how can we can deliver this not in 100 hours but in 80 hours? Mm. And that's on us, of course. Mm. But with hourly rates, there's kind of no impetus yeah. for the architect to do it more rapidly so, so the is, client will pay more. It's what I really love about the hourly conversation because it almost assumes this, like, prevention of this game theory where the architect is going to be conflict of interest to yeah. work as much as possible but like I, I never get why that's the assumption the assumption is that the architect's going to screw the, the client or maybe it's just that the architect is uh, always compelled to work more it's just the instinct and then that ends up bleeding into extra fees because the, the... I think it's just that before we were talking about like the hunger like if, yeah. the, if you just know that no matter how many hours you work on this it'll just be covered yeah you just do it. And I mean, potentially yeah. it's going to result in better design outcomes. 
So there's that as a possibility. I mean, Johnny E from mm. Apple talks about simplicity mm. in their design and how um, most people in the design cycle, you know, you've got a dozen different competing requirements mm. of whatever you're designing. And often the first few iterations of the design solution tackles each of those mm. dozen requirements individually and mm. you get a design response that is fragmented yep. but does solve all the problems. Yep. To then strip that down layer by layer and get deeper and deeper into the design problem until you can find a singular solution that mm. like holistically solves Every all the problems, problems. It's really hard to do. Yeah. It can only be done with lots and lots of time. Or, or, or just looking at lots of scale, like, I mean, it, it, what, how does Norman Foster build their projects for percentage, right? I mean, like, look, I mean, the percentage... What do they often, do? What do they do when the client goes, oh, you know, we've changed our re- legislation, we need another car park under there or something? Like, yeah. do they... I wonder oh, how they probably ask for the cash. Yeah. Yeah. They probably just have really tough people working yeah. for them. I've heard a few conversations around, um, which I think are really valuable to consider, and that is that architecture, like, say, the builder... Yeah has traditionally been associated with the product that gets delivered and therefore my percentage fee is tied to the product Mm. and another newer way of thinking about is saying i'm a service deliverer Mm. and therefore my product my work is tied to my service the product that you get out of the end of it is one of the effects of my work but it's actually not what i'm delivering what i'm delivering is a set of drawings yes um, a set of instructions yes, 100%. and so yeah the idea of removing the percentage fee yes. and just going like this is going to take me a thousand hours to deliver you mm-hmm. here's my hourly rate i'm just going to multiply a thousand by that that's my fee mm-hmm. that's actually saying um yeah it makes more sense yeah and it, yeah i mean that the other good thing about that is it insulates the architect from one of the other real downsides of the percentage fee model which is um market fluctuations mm. So, if, you know, so, yeah. you're working on a half million dollar reno and you end up getting a tenderer and it's all agreed, the budget's agreed and the, um, um, the, it's been costed and whatever and it's all happy. Mm-hmm. And then for whatever reason, a builder undercuts his, um, his competitors by 10% to win the job and suddenly you're working on a four hundred fifty thousand dollar project where your fee comes down yep. just because someone else has decided that they yep. can deliver it more yep. cheaply yep. because they don't need the profit, they just need to yep. keep their guys busy. Yes. You get screwed. So yeah. you know, there's that. Um, and then there's incremental tasks, which is just saying, right, this job, it's not a thousand hours, it's a hundred tasks, each of which mm-hmm. is ten hours. It's mm-hmm. like the, the whole sort of ninety-nine designs mm-hmm. philosophy. Mm-hmm. Each one of those tasks is gonna cost this. Which of those do you want me to do? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And I've heard of a few architects who do that. Kind of not super keen on it because I don't want the client to say, you know, I don't want these 20 tasks because that's just going to make our life harder probably mm. and the product that's going to result yeah, I yeah, think yeah. will be less... Well, but less like this, this is what I kind of feel a little bit critical of the, um, of the of not doing it that way because I think... So critical... Like, of, I'm, I'm, sorry, sorry. I'm, I'm a little bit critical of the other processes because I know why architects don't do the incremental task. The re- mm. <laughs> I'll explain in a second. I think the inc- incremental task hasn't been adopted because people don't want the client to say no to things, parts of our process. Mm. And so that what that tells me about what we like or attracted to about the other styles is that they allow us to make clients pay for things they don't want or need. And I think that is where there is problems, both in terms of quality of you know, relationship yeah. with client, but but that's that's in that's endemic into yeah. endemic, right? intrinsic like, in every every job in the world. 
there's actually a law that describes the stripping of those like extra things. It's called Gresham's yeah. Law, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which I've written about on the blog as well. Um, like if you think about any person who buys anything, you're going to know less about the thing you buy than the person who made yeah, it yeah, by of definition. Course, of course. So the person who's making it yeah. can choose to strip the stuff that you don't know about. Yeah, but that's the case when there's an iPhone, right? So, an, uh, you know, Apple... But also Metricon Homes. That's what Metricon Homes do. Or, or, okay. or that sort of Wait, explain, explain. Because I was going to say, Apple, you know, you know, they make a product, they can make things that the, the customer, they can make... You know, they can give you features and give you things that, you know, the majority of people don't need or want, but they have to pay for them because it's a feature decision or something. That makes sense. But architecture is like quintessentially the opposite in that it's like a fully, you know, custom service to a specific individual or or a client, you know. Um, But but you mentioned, you know, because like, I just think the idea would be that, you know, it would be if I was, if I was delivering like a package of marketing services to a client and I can recommend, you know, say, let's just make up an example that they should have an AdWords campaign running or something like that. Um, and it will work for them and I strongly recommend it and it would satisfy the results that they've come to me for, Mm -hmm. but they don't want it. I'm not going to, I'm not going to reorganize my billing system so that I can give them that campaign. Because I want yeah, the I, totally, I want the client to achieve results, yeah, right? But yeah. I have to just accept that they're just not going to achieve those results if I haven't been able to persuade them that that's important. Which ultimately comes down to sales and persuasion and these areas of business that architects have a bit of a disdain for. Yeah, because totally. sales negotiation. Is, it's yeah it's, yeah, it's just being able to persuade a client isn't about tricking them into doing something. It's about just getting your idea out there so they can understand it. And like, and have them listen to you, basically. Like, that's all your. Yeah, I was reading this book recently, um, and there's a. It's got nothing to do with music, the book, yeah. but there's this passage in the book where, um, and I believe this is a true story that when Bach, the composer, was like challenged by some young young upstart composer yeah. to say, no, the way you do it is this old way of doing it. It's, yeah. it's bollocks. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. new way of writing music is this way, and he like, he like sort of. Um, uh, out out composed Bach in some sort of very public way mm. and Bach responded with a return challenge that um, forced this younger composer the mm. only way the younger composer could understand the challenge mm. or even respond or respond to it at all mm. was he had to study everything that Bach had studied and know everything that Bach had known and as mm. soon as that had happened he like became Bach okay. and said oh well now that I've yeah, studied yeah, everything, I see yeah, your yeah, perspective yeah, yeah, yeah. and of my course, old perspective was wrong. Yeah, so it was yeah. like a genius yeah, kind yeah, of yeah, countermeasure. Yeah, yeah. So, so am I the young guy in this story? <laughs> <laughs> and also just be, just be careful with the, the bumping yeah, on the, the desk and stuff, table. but that's all right. Yeah. Um, um, no, no, so, sorry. Wait, so, 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 the, the story, so Gresham's law has, yeah. actually, no, I'll take a further step back. I think yeah. the, the, the comment you made about like not yeah. wanting to force your client into like taking on an AdWords campaign. Yeah. I think, there's a the, yeah, what's the, the biggest it's not so much a difference it's a <laughs> it's like a philosophical position yeah. that architects which I would call architects greatest weakness when okay. it comes to business and that is is that we love our projects more than our clients do okay yeah, yeah. fundamentally yeah. that is our problem yeah and it's very possible that product designers who make things like iPhones love their products more than the market does yeah that's true but it doesn't really matter because they're selling a million of them Mm-hmm. We only get to sell it once, and mm-hmm. so there's no scalability. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter if Johnny Eve loves his pro- product mm-hmm. more than everyone mm-hmm. else. Mm-hmm. 
Because if he ends up lavishing more time and more energy and more love on his product, mm. it all gets just amortized out out of yeah, billions like, of dollars worth of sales. It's immaterial, term, right? Yeah. Yeah. But for us, every hour we spend is an hour that either going to get paid for or not mm. going to get paid for because mm. it's like a direct relationship between yeah. our fees. They don't go to Johnny and go, hey, Johnny, you've, you've put in 52 hours this week. Like, yeah. we can't, you, you've got to go right. home. Like, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we just have, we just have put in whatever it. hours you need to get this thing. The phone looks Perfect. fine. The phone yeah. looks fine. That, ne- that conversation <laughs> never happens. Um, but for architects, that is like yeah. a real concern. Yeah. So the Gresham's yeah. Law thing is about, you know, the gap between my, as an architect's understanding of all the qualities of a project that I've designed and mm. my client's understanding of those qualities. Mm. And you've got two choices, really, mm. because there's a problem there because presumably at a certain point, the client decides, I'm only going to pay for the ones that I appreciate. Mm. You know, the 50 out of 100 things that mm. I value, I'll pay for those, but I couldn't care less about the other 50. Mm. So there's going to be this downwards pressure in terms of how much you can sell your services for mm. if they're not fully appreciated. Mm. So there are two options. Option one mm. is the um, Metricon option or mm. Amy Jennings or any of those guys, and that is you cut out the other 50. Yes. You don't build a house as well. You don't. You use materials that aren't sustainably resourced. You're trying to get yourself sued, Warwick? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, look, hypothetically speaking. Hypothetically, not Metricon. Um, Metrodon. Metrodon. And, uh, and <laughs> BJ Jennings. Yeah. Um, those guys, um, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, they're they, they build, they deliver the house more cost effectively. Yeah, like yeah, they yeah, cut yeah, out yeah. some of the stuff that yeah. architects put in there. Yeah. So that's option one. And it's actually really easy to do yeah. because the market will just buy stuff. Mm-hmm. And if you can deliver your product at a cheaper price compared mm-hmm. to your competitor, mm-hmm. you've got this kind of, there's going to be an economy of scale eventually in what yep. you do. You're yep. going to start dominating the market, which is exactly what happens in residential architecture yes. in Australia. Yeah. The other option is what Apple does, and mm-hmm. that's a harder thing to do, and that is to make, to educate your customer Get to value the extra 50 things and, and want to pay for them. And like overwhelmingly unpopular moves like getting rid of a headphone jack because it's like, no, it's time. Technology's moving yeah. forward. So Apple you know, is like, like this kind of this kind of thing. They're like they're yeah, they're, they're the world leader yeah, 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 at yeah. telling us yep. what we want. Yeah. And, and then, then we go every other phone copy company copies them. Yeah. And then it just becomes ubiquitous, whatever unconventional move that they kind of made. That's right. So they add a add a add a, a product or a service and then suddenly like you every know, phone is every, like, it's yeah. like, oh of course I need this. Yeah, I need yeah. this in my life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the risk there though mm. is is that it t- takes time and money to educate your customers. Mm. And then the biggest risk is, is once educated, they might go, oh, actually, no, I appreciate all these things you put into the project. Yeah. I'm going to go to your competitor anyway. Yeah, yeah, not, the, not, the, not the Metrodon competitor, yeah. but the other architect, the other architect that yeah, offers yeah. what you offer. Yeah, yeah. Because not, not literally other architects, those no. guys. <laughs> um, Jeez, somebody else, somebody else. <laughs> I'm trying to keep you out of court, man. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I know, I know exactly, um, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. I think it's, find the last two um podcasts i felt very like devil's advocate like well cut out all the cut out all the stuff and like do all this and, and i'm actually starting to think now i hope people don't actually end up thinking that that's what i <laughs> advocate for because um so i don't think architects are good at yeah. the upselling at the upcycling yeah. of what our customer base wants and values in yeah. fact we're, the, we're famously bad at it yeah um well, I think I think going back to you know what we talked about before with, with fee models, um, you know, and um, you know, and, and I think persuasion ties into this a little bit, but um, 
you know, um, I'm trying to forget who the Seth Godin um, spoke about the decline of the book business. Yeah, he's saying that the fundamental issue with the book business was that it thought it was in the paper business when it was actually in the ideas business. Yeah. So when people stop, so when they were viewing, you know, technology very suspiciously, uh, you know, eBooks, Kindle, all very suspiciously, they just want to keep selling books because how they made money was pretty much tied Pieces to that of paper. Pa- yeah, 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 just selling paper. And then they ended up doing fine because it turns out that's not what people were paying for in the first place. Um, what elements of the book industry are doing fine? Elements of the book industry. Well, and whatever survived is kind of... Probably the thing, the bits that have survived, certainly in Australia, the bits that have survived are yeah. the ones that are, have built identities around those ideas, like readings, yeah. for instance, is doing yeah. amazingly well because yeah. they're like where you go for literature. Yeah. And your borders and things have just collapsed yeah. because they were just selling commodities. They were just selling They were just everything. selling crap. What, yeah. It just didn't matter yeah. what they were, whether the books were good or not, they were yeah. just selling them for the sake yes. of it. Yeah. I subscribe to an email newsletter called The Hustle. Um, oh, okay. I've heard it? of it. I've heard of it. So yeah. good. Yeah. Every weekend they do this long form. Um, it's just all tech news and finance news and it's quite yeah. nerdy, but yeah. um, well, geeky is probably yeah, the yeah, right yeah, word. Cool, cool. But every weekend they do a thing which is kind of a longer story that's yeah. often like an allegory for stuff that's happening today. Yep. Okay. And this weekend they did one on, um, I don't know the name of it, but rattlers or rackets or something like that this jewelry business in the uk okay but in the um 80s it was just some like nothing jewelry business but then this um the this new guy took over a CEO, i think maybe it's the son or something mm-hmm. the original founder and he decided that um he noticed that a lot of other markets had were selling stuff by just like being as gaudy and as loud as possible i think he sort of took that from like hawker's markets and that sort of thing yeah. and like fish market sure, sure. And at that point, jewellery was firmly like this elitist, very sort of um, aloof industry where they never displayed prices. You had to go in and sort of vet it and whatever. And he just like put all the prices on the window and was selling stuff for like a pound, like Mm. a a necklace for a pound, like just Mm. ridiculous things. Mm. And then within the space of, I don't know, a year, like a few years, they ended up having like a $1.5 billion market cap. Yeah. Yeah was selling 50% of all jewellery in the UK, like just huge, like yeah. thousands of stores all yeah. around the UK. Yeah. Um, and um, what were we talking about a second ago? <laughs> Why did I bring that up? <laughs> oh, we were talking about, um, oh yeah, we were talking about sort of like, I guess like dumbing down your service, like Metrogon, um, you know, like <laughs> the idea of just, you know, really catering to, catering to the customer. Um, That's what they did. And then yeah. they collapsed. Oh really? Yeah, because he he made like there's there was this um, this amazing graph that you can see that looked at their annual sales. He made this speech where he had he'd written this speech for some major sort of business group, and then someone said, "Oh, you need like you're a funny guy. You should add a few more jokes." And so he added a few more jokes that were never vetted mm. by his speech guy, and it included things like saying, um, "I get people asking me why how can we possibly sell a one pound necklace?" And the answer is, is because it's crap. And he's like dissing his product massively yeah. as this kind of tongue-in-cheek yeah, 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 joke yeah, yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. And then the whole market went, wait a minute, I'm not going to buy that crap anymore. Yeah. And the thing collapsed over, like yeah. just sales just yeah. fell apart. Yeah. And it was because he was selling a commodity, yeah. he wasn't selling kind of the idea. Uh, of I disagree jewelry. though, because I feel like if the CEO of Hermes said like, oh, these women paying $40,000 for these Birkin bags, they're crap. 
like the same thing would happen overnight. Like, well, actually, the, the, like, the article talked about all these other com, com, like yeah. contemporary examples yeah. of CEOs saying stupid things about yeah. the product. Oh, and really? And getting then, like having someone's actually um, done some analysis on um, Tesla. Yeah. And Musk, Musk doesn't say his product's crap, but he comes up with these like crass statements about stuff about the, the cave. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And apparently each time him and other major CEOs, I think the analysis was done on yeah. all these major businesses, yeah. Yeah. each time the CEO says something stupid, the yeah. company stock devalues yeah. by 4 to 5%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In their latest earnings call, it went up 10% when he apologized. Right. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. people were like... Oh, like oh, just breathing fine, a sigh, okay. a yeah, sigh yeah. of relief because yeah. yeah, it is. Um, he went from being like the biggest asset of the company to like its biggest, you know, problem. Yeah, but but um, you know, so I think I think the reason you know bring up the the book thing was that going you know going back to fee models, the idea that you know you you make money the more building the more bricks you sell. I mean, you're not really in the brick, the brick and concrete business. Yeah, definitely in the service business. The other thing that I think stuck out to me that was strange was when. Um, Sean Carter wrote the Fee Madness article yeah. on Architecture AU and pointed to the idea of fee scales. It was always in these percentages of project budget. And it was like, back in my day, it was five or six, but now you're lucky if you get three or 1.5. But I'm thinking like, you know, house prices have probably tripled over the last like 30 years or something in Melbourne, at least, or Sydney. Like we're talking about completely different absolute values of money and your cost of operating your firm to produce the same buildings has actually decreased because you're not paying your staff more than you did back then um, and you've gotten more productive. So so really, you know, it, mm. the thing that stood out to me about the percentages saying like 1.5 is weird now. I'm like 1.5 at all times or whatever, it's 1.5 or 5, it just relates to a fixed number of dollars that the director thinks they deserve for the project or like that's how much revenue we should get for designing something like that. And I just don't get why... I guess like you can understand what that amount is after the project's finished and that's where the murkiness of the whole process comes in. But why is I think it's like that jewelry shop. It's like the price isn't on the window. Like nothing's on the window. It's it's just kind of like it's probably quite I I, I think you make some good points about, you know, how do you actually compare what the industry was doing ten or five or fifty yeah. years ago? How is there a universal percentage fee that makes no, any course. sense in this industry? I mean, you know, the institute used to publish a fee curve, which yeah. was then deemed anti-competitive by the Australian yeah. yeah, but um, <laughs> you know, you, you can still find copies of that. Yeah, yeah, it's on, and, on Twitter. Um, yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, and. You know, there's like, oh, well, I mean, that was like published 15 years ago, but, you know, the percentage is has grown, like yeah. the value of the construction. Yeah. I think it's probably, so potentially the fee curve is still usable, um, is what that kind of argument It would have makes. to be updated, like, currently Melbourne house prices are falling, like, what, 4% a quarter? Before that, they were going up, like, 8% a quarter. Like, well, house price is not probably the relevant thing, it's the I construction mean, Construction cost catches up to house price. In in terms well, of well, it's now it's, escalated it. So yeah. I used to work for a, um, a guy who did a lot of sort of private development work, and he yeah. was saying that back in the eighties, you could buy a house, paint it, recarpet it, and make a profit when you sold it. Sure. That whatever money you put into the renovation of it mm. was so cheap compared to the improvement value on the property yeah. that that relationship always worked. Yeah. Nowadays, you can't do that. You no. can't spend money on a house and get that money back. Yeah. Um, unless you're doing it on probably three, four, or three hundred houses, mm. um, that economy of scale starts working. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's because land is so is like another thing 
the, the house that's sitting on the land is its own sort of economy. Economy mm-hmm. There's the construction industry, its own economy. And then there's a the land which is actually, I think, independent of those things. Yeah, yeah. Because it doesn't cost me anything different to build in Carlton as it does to build in Cranbourne. But the land value has a huge impact yes. on whether or not I yeah. can yeah. build in those two things. So yeah. I think probably comparing longitudinally across time yeah. is probably like a whole PhD's worth of yeah, research. No, I, yeah. Um, um, I did read an interesting article about people flipping, like doing renovations and flipping, yeah, about yeah. how now you, you can't do that in Australia. But, but they found that when, when <coughs> the pro- pro- property prices were appreciating so quickly, um, the successful flippers were often the ones that just took the longest. <laughs> because you know, yeah because the land, land, land value yeah, caught up yeah, yeah the quicker they flipped yeah. sometimes um, yeah. sometimes the less capital gains they yeah. got or probably the ones who accidentally bought in the right suburb that yeah. just exploded yes at the right yeah, time yeah, yeah, and yeah. you heard plenty of stories about you know that sort of thing yeah um, so I think the um, that, that question of feed madness and yeah that was a really interesting month there was just five very five or six really good articles. Oh, it was really exciting to be on Twitter. It's exciting to be on Twitter. I feel like a lot of people reactivated their Twitter accounts. Yeah. That's where it was happening. The threads were right, they super were huge, spicy threads going on in architecture Twitter. Yeah, <laughs> um, and then I mean, I went away on holidays at exactly yeah. the wrong time to yeah. actually find time to write an article about it. Yeah. But it's still on my list of things to do. Yeah, um, sort of a considered sort of thought about it. I mean, I think. Yeah, what's your it, thoughts on it? If you're going to write an article about it, well, maybe we should start by saying like what the what the original like real what's the thirty second elevator pitch of Sean Sean Carter's article that started the whole thing. Basically, we should, I think his whole thing was saying, wasn't it? We should stop undercutting each other. Yeah, and start um, and in, interrupting the cycle of undercutting competition of competition by. <laughs> I mean, he was basically advocating for a return to set fees. Yeah. Um, yeah. which have existed in a number of countries all around the world. Mm. Uh, I think that, and I mean, I think you might have said something along the lines of that's like a form of protectionism or... No, I don't, that wasn't, um, that was that was Peter Raisbeck in his right. article. Yeah, yeah. He said it was a bit like Trumpish or just like a bit, you know, like, it was a little bit like you can't, you can't really like build up, like you can't sandbag things like that and just freeze it and... Yeah, so yeah. I was so when we were when we were travelling, I was over in um, we were over in Paris and caught up with um, a friend of ours. She's Australian, but is now living over there, and she's married um, a French guy. They're both um, architects, and I went out for a drink with um, with him, and I was just I was actually talking about this conversation about fee undercutting and the fee madness issue that we'd been discussing on Twitter, and asked what the situation was like in Paris. And he said, "Well, the first thing is 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 that you can't." build that architect in France mm-hmm. full stop mm-hmm. it's not the type of, I, I mean I'd have to you know you'd have to check this I guess but his his comment was doesn't matter about what you're building you need to use an architect scale size typology it's all mandated mm-hmm. and like I quite like that form of sandbagging because it exists yeah. in lots of other industries and then everyone just becomes an architect but like, the architect is protected right yeah but protected from nobody because everyone's an architect at that point like well, protected by a university degree, but, but like, think, think about like the legal industry, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They haven't mandated that you use a lawyer. Yeah, 
in as a solicitor, as highly recommended, but super recommended, right? <laughs> and you can't have, um, I think, unless you've been admitted to the bar, yeah. you can't represent someone else in a court of law yeah. as yeah. a barrister. Yeah. So that is a mandated thing. You cannot, yeah. unless you want to yeah, represent yeah, yourself, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you'd be like, only yeah. fools go and represent themselves in in yeah. court yeah, when yeah. they instead they go to law. And then the question is, you know, do you go to a high end lawyer or a low end lawyer? Yeah. yeah. But they have successfully carved a very effective niche for themselves, mm-hmm. and I think it's really interesting because they've done it. it. It's they've done it because they control the law. Yeah. So new laws are made when judges pass a judgment on an issue that has been yeah. presented to them mm-hmm. by lawyers. Judges themselves have come from legal backgrounds. That 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 determination in a court then influences all these other court yep. decisions because yep. you can then rely on it for the next court case sure. on that issue. Sure. We don't have control over legislation in that same way. No. Um, but that's super effective. IT guys have done the same thing. Like they write the code, and no one else other than people who write code can understand the code yep. to then manipulate the code. So it like perpetuates the use of people of developers yep. to like continue to update the developers, um, yep. the developments, which is genius because every time the iOS changes, which is really regularly, everyone's apps break because they, there's like some new provision within Apple's operating system mm-hmm. that no longer works, which then means more people can come on board to like rewrite the code to fix the new software. Mm. Planners, they do the same thing as well. Mm-hmm. Like each time a new VCAT decision comes in that compl- complicates and muddies and, and draws out the complexity of construction because of some planning decision, creates more work for planning consultants. Yeah. So there's like... There's but these... I look at that like that's a bad thing. <laughs> well, it's tough. It's super bad for architects, but in it's terms just, of the no, like, economy... No, no, but for like for... Uh, for yeah. planners, it's great. Yeah, for planners, it's great, but this is... This I'm is not saying a... that planners are perpetuating it, but I'm saying there is a scenario yeah, 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 that yeah. helps them yes, yes, perpetuate yes. their usefulness, whereas yeah. architects don't have Well, that. I... I think that the only, the ideals, not the ideal system, the system that would ultimately have architects achieve what they want in this feed madness conversation, which is more money for the same work, yes. basically, yep. um, would be some sort of system of like liquor licenses or taxi licenses, which is the same <coughs> as registration, except we go, there's only 5,000 of them. Because basically what they want to create is a false supply demand curve. That's oh no, like they want to manipulate the supply demand curve because right now we have a working system where anybody who wants to can choose to work with an architect, anyone who wants to can choose to be an architect, and we've just got this system and it's pricing architecture, the service of architecture at a point where some people are going out of business, so some why, people are near going out of business. So just, surely that though, that happens in every industry. Yeah, it does. So why is it? happening in an unsustainable way in architecture i think there might be a a uh well that's that's a good question i think well firstly i would i would like more specific examples of how exactly firms doing what doing poorly versus others maybe those firms are sort of meant to go out of business um Maybe that's what's needed. <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, because, you know, but like this idea of the fee competition, um, yeah, I mean, that's a tough one. But it seems like somebody is delivering that service. Um, maybe like, you know, Peter Raisbeck on his blog talks about how international firms have an increasing influence in Australia. What if like local firms are losing jobs to international firms who are doing loss leader 
kind of um, capability building in a, in a country, you know, like where they're making a negative fee and like maybe there's some of that stuff going on. I don't know what the... But like China. back to the point about the, you know, the idea of solutions to redress the demand, um, which I've, you know, which I've brought up as well that, you know, like architects need to, you know, market better and things. But I'm always looking at that as... The, the industry might be a mess the economy of architecture might be a mess but there's no excuse for your individual practice not doing really well mm. um, so that's my that's my kind of stance but um, but you know some of the industry-wide solutions would just basically uh, you know either if it, if it worked and architecture became fees went higher then you just have more people coming into the profession there's no which is I think the points two and three that Sean Carter talked about which was caps on graduates and other things because he's already sub either consciously or subconsciously identified the issue that if it becomes a more lucrative profession it just fills up with people again and it just and then the exact same well, except thing except he was saying that there are too many graduates yeah he's saying that he's saying there are too many he wants like he wants to cap that because then you can actually start to yeah I mean there's a lot of graduates going into well, a it profession would be less, there would be less competition less competition you know I mean it goes back to your comment of game theory before and I think one of your comment also just a second ago about um, whether or not there's an excuse for individual organisations to be doing well, even if the entire industry is in a mess, mm. that connects to the idea of game theory, which says what's, you know, what's good for the individual is good for the group. And I think part of the problem at the moment is not necessarily, not to answer the question about why is mm. that supply-demand relationship unsustainable for the architecture profession. For some. Um, <laughs> is because that possibly what's happening yeah. Yeah. is that everyone is looking after their own interests and in some instances yeah. that is they're doing so at the expense of others. Okay. So, you know, I've, I mean, I've heard rumours about various practices that um, poach projects, you know, go basically just keep an eye on um, VCAT um, decisions about large apartment buildings and then they will go and approach the developer and say, whatever your other architect is paying you, is you're paying them, we will um, deliver the project 15% mm -hmm. less, or whatever the number mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. And that is actually their business acquisition strategy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's bad news for the profession as a whole, yeah. and bad news for the other architect, yes. but potentially good for them. So they're yeah. kind of... Yeah. That's not good game theory. That's bad. But something just kind of crystallized to me when you said before, well, why, doesn't, why isn't this a problem in other industries? Yeah. I was thinking, that sounds like every other industry. Tough, tough people murder each other in other industries. Like, think about finance. Think about real estate. Think about like, so many different areas. Like, that idea of going to your competitor's client and saying, I'll do it cheaper... Well, that happens everywhere. Like, if I don't, just think, have to I don't think it works like that way. Real estate's <laughs> an interesting one. Because the other way of... It depends. The, the flip side is saying that I deliver this service for you yep. and in so doing, I lift yep. my entire industry. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, and whether or not I'm undercutting my competitor yep. is probably not the, the main goal. It's really more whether or not... I think probably the, the bigger picture is does me offering this service at this price hurt my competitors or help my competitors? And there are... There are industries where, for instance, again, if we go back to law, like the idea that once you become sufficiently experienced and get sufficient um, notoriety or expertise in a particular area, you can choose to become a, a Queen's counsel. Mm -hmm. um, and that is actually quite a dangerous thing to do because Queen's councils are required to charge more. There's like an expectation that they, they lift yeah. their charge rates. Yeah. 
And in so doing, they might lose a, a whole yes. bunch of the repeated clients who don't want to pay that yeah. or even just don't like the idea that, oh, well, now that you're a QC, you're too busy for me, too important for me, I'm just going to go elsewhere, yeah. even if their prices don't change. Yeah. So there is a risk doing that. Yeah. But there's an idea that when I... Like, there's this general impression that if I want the best, mm. I go to a QC. Yeah, of course. Yeah. It doesn't exist yeah. necessarily. It doesn't necessarily exist no. with architecture. It does, though. It does, but it doesn't have a label. There Maybe. are certain architects... Who yeah, has, sure have got are. you know we've got traction and success. Yeah, if and I'm in Turak and look, I want to build a mansion, I go to a certain cohort yep, of architects. Yep. Yeah, that's true. Um, Google recently did an algorithm update, um, like last week or whatever. Um, random SEO side fact, but their main point was they're emphasising uh, they call it EAT, which is expertise, authoritativeness, and trust. Yes, and that websites that don't demonstrate that their their creators have those three qualities will go down in rankings and be replaced by people who do. So people that have academic title in the about page will be preferred over people that don't. People that you can read, you don't see bad rumors about on the internet will go that will go up versus those that will go down and these kinds of things. And that's what the QC represents. It's EAT basically. Yes. And um, architects, and I think you've you've always been exceptionally good at this because of you know your blog um, relationships with academia as well, building a lot of EAT and. You know that allows you to charge more, whereas like there are firms that hypothetically, hypothetically, yes. So this is another one because I'm like, in theory, well, why can't you charge? Why can't you charge twice what other people charge? Because like, okay, a world that I, you know, I'm interested in, obviously entrepreneurship, but I'm also interested in freelancers, um, be those graphic designers, or I consider myself like a freelancer, um, and the and the biggest the most important thing we look at in that space is like, are you the $40 an hour graphic designer or are you the $400 an hour graphic designer or the $800 an hour yeah. graphic designer? Who's to say one is better than the other at drawing like the Nike tick? But there is, there is something that happens up the scale of fees to those, you know, to those other people. And anyway, this is just so commonplace in, in fields like that, particularly we've got freelancers, consultants, lawyers, people that are working as sort of, um, brains for hire and I wonder why in architecture um, it, it's com- it's completely out of the it, it, it's when I've asked questions about that people said our clients would never pay us a dollar more than they have to and that seems yeah. to be even good firms talk that way so that graphic design um, analogy is also again relevant to the lawyer analogy because yeah. you don't go to a QC for a fence dispute like that's yeah. just like massive overkill yeah. so the scale you know, the, if you if you break down that industry, you break down the graphic design industry or any, there is going to be a bell curve where there are people at the lower end of things that charge certain like cheaper rates but do certain types of work, mm-hmm. and at the other end there are people who charge much higher rates that you would you would never go to some really complex case at the lower end, and you wouldn't go for some really simple case at yeah. the higher end. So yeah. they all kind of yeah. The market will sort of sorts itself out. Mm-hmm. Supply and demand at each one of those kind of price points mm. makes sense. Yeah. My suspicion is is that someone's thinking um, that may, that it does exist in architecture. It definitely does. I mean, you know, if you're you're a um, a major organisation and you want some flagship building in Docklands to be built, like your NAB or you know a bank or whatever. You go to an art, a big name architect that has a huge amount of expertise in delivering these massive buildings because those kind of that 
proposition works. You know, mm. I'm important. I'm going to go to an important architect to get my building mm-hmm. built. Like mm-hmm. that exists, but maybe that there's a breakdown. That there's large components within the source of the breakdowns. There's large components of the general public or parts of communities which don't identify their project as existing at that top end when they possibly should. Oh yeah. So they think their 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 problem is way simpler and way and deserving of much less creativity than actually it warrants. Mm. So, you know, our studios in Brunswick East, we do a lot of, we hit up and down Ligon Street a lot, and there is just shit being built everywhere. Like, mm. soul-destroying apartment buildings that have terrible street frontages that are just not going to do good things for the street, for, mm. you know, public engagement, like, you know, shops and that sort of thing, mm-hmm. they just don't really exist. Mm-hmm. Um, the building, the apartments themselves are really mediocre. Yeah. Aesthetically, they're leaving this, like, legacy of just yeah. crap buildings in our, yeah. in our, um, in our suburbs. And maybe it's because whoever's involved in the decision-making just doesn't see their project as worthy of more than mm. it is. Mm. And there are certain developers that are trying to break out of that, like milieu properties are trying mm. to, you know, they're saying, mm. well, we value design. Mm-hmm. Um, the Nightingale projects, they're saying we value design. Mm-hmm. There are a few developers who are saying, we actually think that these projects are worthy of more. Mm. But I don't think that narrative necessarily exists well, I, I'm adamant that that narrative does not exist universally, mm. whereas it probably exists more thoroughly in other industries. Mm. And there's probably, a, like you could probably plot a graph of every industry that exists and see how much of, you know, your target market thinks that, you know, their, their problem is worthy of the higher level solution. Yeah. And that I just sense that architecture is kind of the lower end. Lower of end. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why 90, 95% of building, of houses are built by non-architects or designed mm. by non-architects because mm. the people who live in them um, and want them and buy them just don't see architecture sitting on the value side of yeah, the yeah, spreadsheet. Yeah, yeah. They yeah. see it on the cost side of the yeah, spreadsheet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, last uh, last week on on the podcast, um, Nick actually gave me a bit of an interesting kind of perspective on that. You know, a long time ago, or not like long time ago, maybe fifty years ago, architects were just something really, really wealthy people worked with. Mm. You know, and it was like a huge, impressive asset to have a, a house or whatever designed by an architect, and that like it's actually pretty historically rare to have normal people. Um, having architects design them a custom home mm. <laughs> like we haven't really like have had that so much like you know a long time ago um, and you know so what I think is sort of I think it's right that it's very strange that people don't feel they still like an, there's a there's a market communi- a market education issue that people don't really see that this product is this service is for me and I think that might be because Maybe they don't have any friends that have used an architect. They don't have any family members that use an architect. It's like in a show when somebody says, my parents didn't go to university, so I didn't, you know, like I didn't know anybody that went to, you know, whatever or something like that. Um, And then what happens when an architect works with somebody, um, it unlocks this sort of little network of word of mouth where suddenly you're picking up people that would have probably never worked with an architect. But maybe that's the first time they've been in someone's architect-designed home and asked them questions of, well, you could afford this. And they're like, yeah, could afford it. Didn't, didn't cost much extra at all. Or like, you know, these sort of things start to happen. And then that, that's the kind of grassroots 
version mm. of it. But there's also the top, like I'd say the top down version of it, which is kind of on your website, you have a case study. We, we work on a lot of case studies for clients as well. Um, but we're actually breaking down a little bit about the client and talking about the process and sort of saying that there's nothing particularly unusual about this project in some senses. Like, you know, most of the people that could go to a home builder could easily go through this same process that we went through with our client. And you're using that case study to kind of educate your, you know, your market. Is that something that you're, you're thinking about when you're doing it or is it just about sort of a point of difference? Or... Um, look, transparency is one of our points of difference. Yep. Um, and we talk about that a lot in, our, in those first meetings with our clients. Yeah. Um, the other part of it is that uh, explaining everything we do is really mind-numbing. Mm-hmm. And we used to do it. And we, you know, up until probably only a year or two ago, those first meetings we would take clients arduously through different documentation sets and say, look, this is what you get at sketch design, this is what you get at town planning. And looking back on it, their eyes just would glaze over. Not because they weren't interested, but it was just like massive information overload. And, um, they were, you know, we were trying to like force feed this sort of education about the process, like that, that whole sort of Gresham's Law, Apple mm-hmm. scenario mm-hmm. in a single meeting. Mm-hmm. It's too much. Mm-hmm. And then we had um, a, a marketing um, consultant come in to our studio and help us sort of redefine mm-hmm. how we operate. And we mm-hmm. had Verity Campbell do that with us. Yep, yep, yep. Um, and she just said, don't worry about that stuff. Yeah. You don't want to be competing necessarily with people who don't understand what an architect does. Yeah. Put that stuff in a passive way. So put it up mm. on the website, mm. put it on the blog, put it in our mm. like, welcome packages that we give our clients. Explain yeah. what we do there. They yeah. can read that at their own time if yeah. they want to, if they don't yeah. want to. Yeah. Yeah. You just need to sell the dream yeah. that what you're offering is the ability to deliver a dream. Like yeah. That's Attach yourself to the dream, not yeah. to the nuts and bolts of yeah. the bloody bits of paper. Mm-hmm. The book industry again. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, in fact, I think a few times about stuff that you've talked about um, in that regard which is um, about how um, uh, that the, the ideal client or the ideal client architectural relationship, you might even see this in our last podcast chat, mm. that you want to be super accessible mm. and friendly and open and, and available, mm. but you also somehow want to force a prospective customer to read everything you've ever written. Mm. And we know actually that when clients talk about having you know scoured through our website that they're much more likely to, to yeah, um, become course. a paying of course, of customer course. so yeah and i think i could talk to that that's just like they that's the eat stuff right like yeah. they're just um they're getting uh, they they trust you at that point and there's such a shortage of um i wouldn't say explanatory content but you know you're putting your authoritativeness comes across and that's what clients are kind of looking for they're looking they actually Actually, I'm looking for somebody that a they can trust, that's an expert, that's an authority in the industry. It's just, it's important to people, so you know they read that content, they digest all of it, and I think the same the well, the way you market the closest parallel that I can see is to actually the financial advice industry. Really, which is kind of weird, but really specifically, there's a firm in New York called Ritholtz Wealth that basically invented finance Twitter in terms of all their staff started blogs and Twitter accounts. Every idea they had about, you know, should you buy S&P 500 things and hold on to them or should you go with bonds or whatever their thing was, they put all of their, basically their advice that they give their clients into their blog posts. 
um, and you know that 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 those ideas were allowed to be tested um, in the world, um, and they stood the test of time. They they would only put out things that could really stand up to scrutiny, and um, you know over time people sought that content out because it's just somebody just sharing you know their insights mm. on things, um, and you know then in terms of how they actually close deals with their clients. It's just a very small pitch about why their take on managing finance is, is a little bit different to what you see from, you know, um, Joe Blow on in the office complex on Main Street, you yeah. know, um, and, um, you know, don't worry about the detail. You know, if you want to, you can read everything that's on the site, but yeah, it's, we'll take care of it. Always here for questions. Yeah, I think it's that accessibility thing as well. It's like, you know, it's, I feel that with my clients too. It's kind of like, if you just want to, we just want me to like be off to the sidelines just doing things. It just gets done. But if you want to send me emails or ask for videos or ask for phone calls, like that's that's there. Um, so have you sort of felt the same since you've kind of stripped things down a little bit? Um, so obviously the, the content on your website has been super valuable. Um, do you kind of, do you feel like you don't have to really labor with your clients to to really persuade them on the value of what you do or that's, that's become like easier over time? Well, we don't at all anymore. Any, at all. No, yeah. we don't. Yeah. I mean, we don't justify a fee. No, nothing. You know, we just say, this is the fee. Yeah. And really, the connection we're trying to make is we're trying to... Um, we're really trying to shoot for a, um, a market that is already at least partially educated. Most of our clients have never worked with an architect before. Mm. But what we, like ideally what we want to somehow be able to transmit via osmosis is to get a client sitting, a prospective client sitting there thinking, okay, I have this dream. I don't want my house to be a commodity. I want my house to be something much more than that. I want it to be a vessel for my family and I to live in, my kids to grow up in. I want it to nurture our mm. lifestyle. Mm. I want it to be my forever home, my dream home. I want all these things that aren't really necessarily about whether or not that wall is made out of brick or, or timber yeah. or whatever. It's yeah. about like these aspirational qualities yeah. and Mahaley Slocum are the ones who I trust to achieve that for me. Yeah. So we want to somehow attach ourselves to that idea. Yeah. Um, and then, then the sort of the fee, like when, when we know that when we compete with other architects on our projects, we've gone, which we mostly do these days, we know from feedback um, that our fees are never like that much different from our, mm. cl- uh, our competitors. Mm. Um, but really kind of what we want it to be is to say, well, I'm so in love with the idea of Mahaley Slocum being the ones for me to deliver that idea that if that's what they're asking for, that's what I'll pay. Mm. Um, and it's kind of like mm. um, you know, you're buying a car and yes, the price point of the car is always going to be a relevant thing. Yeah. But for a lot of people, I think I always have seen myself yeah. in a two-door coupe, BMW, yeah. convertible, whatever. Yeah. 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 And if that's what it costs me to get into that dream, yeah. that's what I'll pay. Yeah. Um, and time and time again, um, like we make decisions like that. Like when we engage our graphic designer to rebrand us, they weren't the cheapest. They were the ones that we felt most closely aligned with our vision for the project of yeah. rebuilding our website. Yeah. And they're the ones we went with. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of the, the philosophy. Yeah. And our whole kind of pitch is about openness. And yeah. I think it's it's interesting you just mentioning talking about the, the finance group. Yeah. That I've just realized potentially, I don't know, either deliberately or not deliberately, that um, 
personality-wise, Erica's um, introverted and I'm extroverted. Mm. And so there's like, I think it's a very healthy tension in there about mm. how much we share. Mm. My general philosophy is that um, sharing is better than hoarding. Mm-hmm. And that idea that, you know, if you share these, these insights, yep. eventually, um, the you know, a group of people, whoever that group of people is, will come to associate you with the, the yep. knowledge behind those yep. insights yep. and they yep. want that knowledge as part of their project. Yep. But in fact, our project delivery the way we talk about the work that we do is also quite open. Yeah. Um, and that's actually the sort of the, the way we market ourselves yeah. in those first meetings. And we have a whole sort of way, a bunch of ways of explaining it. Um, mm. And that's, I think, closely aligned with the values of the blog. Mm. That oh, And also, here's this blog. I write this blog. It talks about some of the things you might be interested in, you know, how much projects cost and how long they take and, yep. and how the architect, you know, client relationship works. Go and read it. Mm. I'm not going to shove it down your throat now but if you're interested do it yeah we do have a number of clients we had one recently who dug up some really old article i wrote about the terminator mm. and how the t1000 was this like perfectly designed product uh <laughs> from terminator 2 and they said anyone talking about the t1000 in their blog is all right by yeah. me um, yeah. it's like yeah. all right cool that's yeah. You, know, yeah. you never know which one's gonna strike yeah. a, the right chord yeah yeah so what's on your... Can we cover everything on your thing? <laughs> I want to quickly... Um, Archi-team and Rast, yeah. just real quick. I think, um, you know, it's good to have something to plug and uh, it's good to plug Rast. Yes, uh, it is. I mean, so... You've contributed, I see. Yes. Sort of from the Pazeeble page. Yeah. Indeed, indeed. Um, you know, so Archi-team is getting more involved in... Well, t- tell me a little bit of what, you, what you're up to at Archi-team at the moment. Uh, so Architeam is, um, so, I mean, people don't know I'm a director of Architeam, um, and we, for a number of years now, we've been like a lot of architecturally related member services organizations. We do CPD events and, you know, tours and, um, awards programs and that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, and we write collaterals, like there's a client architect agreement that Architeam produces and things like that. Uh, and some recent newer initiatives are we're starting a conference that is my mm. baby for next mm. year, um, which is super exciting. Mm, um, and, and not just my baby, we've got a group, a working group that's running it. Um, and then RASP. So RASP stands for Research for Architects and Small Practice mm-hmm. um, and is, uh, I think, po- definitely in Australia, possibly the world, the first... Um, or is hoping to be the first crowd-funded bit of research into architecture mm. um, or architectural mm. practice, mm. Uh, which is pretty cool. And it's a collaboration with um, University of Melbourne, and it was actually a, a, a like a collaborative brainchild of one of um, a couple of Archie Team's members, um, Tom Bullock and um, Rosemary Ross, um, who's a past, who's actually the past director that I replaced on the board, um, and then Peter Raisbeck from the University of Melbourne, and the. The goal, the aspiration is to, to basically explore one research question every year. Mm. Um, and so we're running a pilot program this year and trying to crowdfund it. Mm. Um, so part of the funding is coming from Architeam um, yeah. and we're now going to the community to try and source the rest of the cash. That's about $23,000 that we need to find. Architeam's putting uh, mm-hmm. five grand in. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I think that it's super aligned with P- 
Peter's values about research in in, yeah. in in practice, and even though the research will be taking place within the university organisation, we decided that it needed to be that way to have authority and, and gravitas mm-hmm. and be something that can be used. But the first question we're asking is um, is one from a list that we sort of we debated and decided upon as a great way to kick things off mm-hmm. was does an architect bring extra value to your the value of your property? When you then go and sell mm-hmm. it, and so mm-hmm. Peter is going to look at a two groups of projects: one that has been renovated by architects, and one that has been not renovated by architects, and look at whether or not there's been a, a difference in sale prices, basically, when those then have gone onto the market mm-hmm. in the following years. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not to say that's the only way of assessing value, but mm-hmm. it is one. It's a piece of data that doesn't exist mm-hmm. anywhere in Australia. Mm-hmm. Let's qu- try to quantify it and see what happens. Yeah. So we've got 14 days left. Let's do it quickly before all those capital gains evaporate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> or, yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, you know, everyone else went down 10%. Architect design homes, only down 5 yeah. That'll, yeah, be, that'll, be, that'll be a much less impressive story. Well, I mean, we are looking at... I mean, it's <laughs> going to be looking at historic data. Yeah, 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 um, of course. But, no, I, but it's I, really cool. It's I think cool. it's um, there's there's been a lot of I'm quite frustrated by some of the rules of thumb that architects take for granted but don't mm. actually seek to justify. Yeah. So um, you know there's this claim that floats around everywhere that says that architects are involved in five to, five to ten percent of um, of residential yeah. projects. Yeah, it was on my website for a time as well. And <laughs> it's very like, where does that even come from? <coughs> I, I remember I wrote an article about um, the Robin Boyd um, yeah. Foundation a number of years ago and yeah. I was trying to track down where that came from and I spoke mm. to um, registration boards around Australia and I spoke to the University of Melbourne and no one, everyone seemed to say the same numbers but no one could pin it to any particular research paper. Mm. I think it's just, just come. It's yeah. like evo- it's erupted into the mutual consciousness and yeah. now everyone accepts yeah, yeah, it as yeah, real. Yeah. And people have sort of been calling for a while to say, we need to quantify that quite explicitly. Mm. And I get a bit of pushback saying, who cares if it's 5 or 10? And I think it's actually not about the percentage. It's about then saying, well, okay, let's say we do do 10%. Mm. What is that worth to the Australian economy every yep. year? Because yep. if that's measured in the billions of dollars, which I imagine it would be, yep. then that's a piece of data we can then take to politicians and... Decision makers within really important segments of the economy to say you need to look after us because we are helping deliver this amount, this you know, this massive chunk of you know the state economy or the national economy. Yeah. And we don't, we can't do that based on five to ten percent. We need to know it's exactly eight point three percent. And last year was only eight percent. So actually, this year we're delivering a bigger slice of the economy. Which means we're trending upwards, and you know those longitudinal yep. insights are yep. really valuable. So the RAS project is an example of that. Saying yep. Yep. you know it's a small research project, and the RAS, the purpose of RAS, is RAS because Architeam represents small practices, is to focus on small practice issues. Yep. It's not looking at the big end of town, yep. and I don't think there's ever any aspiration to be saying you know well, you know what are the implications of innovated contracts on the architecture profession or the building economy or whatever. That's yeah. That's not what Architeam members do. Yeah. We're looking at small practice issues. Yeah. And we've got this kind of ever-growing list of other questions that want to sort of follow up on yeah. this first yeah. one. Yeah. 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 Cool. Very exciting. Warwick, thank you very much, man. Thanks for, <laughs> thanks for coming in. No worries, man.